Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to History Rage, where we invite our leading historians to cry out my kingdom for the truth. The podcast where myth is smothered in the Tower of London and then buried under a car park for 500 years. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here recording live today at the Gloucester History Festival. 150 talks, two weeks, all from the beautiful setting of Blackfriars Priory in the heart of this historic city. And continuing our special theme for the final weekend of the festival, I am now joined by historian, author of The House of Beaufort and Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders and returning rager, Nathan Amin. Nathan, welcome back to History Rage. Thank you very much. I'm not sure what it says about me that I want another rage. I'm not sure what kind of uh, deficiency I have in my, in my character, but I'm here. I'm willing. I'm ready. Once more. Okay, so um, so we first met back at the end of Series 4 for your sterling defence of Henry VII's claim to the throne, and now you're back. So before we dive into your race today, can you just tell us kind of your thoughts about this festival and why you come to it? It's a, an incredible honour to be asked to come to Gloucester History Festival. Um, I think this is easily one of the top three, um, if not the top, history festival we have in this country, and I've always had my eye on it, although I never believed that I would be invited to speak to such a, at a, such a prestigious event. Uh, I often compare it to, to football in some ways, because some of my friends sometimes ask me about what type of talk am I giving this week or what type of event there is. And I compare it to, to football in that Gloucester History Festival is definitely an international call-up. Um, so yes, I've been honoured today to, uh, to make my debut in person at such a unrivaled almost event. Yeah. Who'd have thought two guys who don't share a history GCSE between us could be at this festival? Absolutely. If only my, if only my teachers could see me now. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Stodolny, take note. Okay, so as there's clearly more than one thing that you wish everyone would just stop believing, it seems moot to ask that question now. Um, so, what is annoying the hell out of you today? <sighs> Richard III and I think the cult that I built up around him over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Um, uh, as anyone who follows me on social media will know, uh, scarcely a day goes by that I'm not in the trenches with a Ricardian or two. Yeah, I mean, we just posted this up that it was coming out on Twitter and they started to come out of the woodwork at that point as well. There's some scary people there. But we do want to make a distinction uh, in those scary people, do we not? Yeah, so, so let, let's ask, first of all, what is a Ricardian, I suppose? A Ricardian is someone who believes in the rehabilitation of Richard III's reputation. You know, they believe that he was someone who was slandered uh, by Tudor propaganda. He was maligned by the likes 
of Shakespeare and Thomas More. Um, but, you know, we do have this great vehicle of Ricardianism, which is the Richard III Society. I often feel that people sometimes conflate the two, the Richard III Society and Ricardianism. Are they not one and the same? And I'd argue no. I mean, the Richard III Society is fantastic. Mm. Um, yes, you all heard that right. The Richard III Society is fantastic for the work that they do. I mean, anyone who's a member, anyone who's ever read the Ricardian Bulletin, um, anyone who's ever attended their talks, I've even given plenty of talks to the Richard III Society myself, some of the work they do is it's, it's ahead of its time in many respects. I mean, they have such a, a history of fantastic articles uh, and so on. Um, I do thoroughly recommend everyone check them out if they have a hit interest in not just Richard, but the 15th century. And then we have Ricardians. Now, now, of course, most Ricardians will be members of the Richard III Society, but I just feel that there is sometimes an element that perhaps, should we say, take things too far. An um, extremist. Uh, an ex- a radical. Uh, an extremist, I suppose we're going to say. And they're not always members of the Richard III Society. Sometimes some of them have told me in person many times that the Richard III Society, they feel, is sometimes too soft in its battle to unmalign Richard's reputation. And this is when we start to get into historical hooliganism, I suppose we can say. Yeah, because you mentioned you'd had people like spit at you at Bosworth. Oh, I've I've had some trouble in my time. Um, And my only crime often tends to be that I took a liking to the study of Henry VII. Uh, I mean, I remember years ago, I set up on Facebook around 2012. I'll tell you what it was. Richard III Society was getting a lot of media coverage because of the supposed, well, the real discovery of Richard III's remains. And I'd already been quite deep into my study of Henry VII. Now, it's hard to imagine that today, Henry VII is probably one of the most popular tutors to study, particularly on the A-level curriculum. But going back to 2012... There was next to nothing out about Henry yeah. VII. I mean, the previous biography had been written in 1997, an academic book by Sean Cunningham. And before that, we had to go back to 1972 for um, S.B. Grimes' uh, magisterial book about Henry. So I was trying to find, was there anyone else around on the internet who liked Henry Tudor? So I set up a page, Henry Tudor Society, uh, and almost instantly I was under attack. Um, I even found some tweets where people were planning their attack on my page um, to try and, you know, take me down as the as the new arch villain of Ricardianism, and it just grew from there. I mean, I became quite well known for being the, the Henry guy. I can't I can't suggest that I was completely innocent in all of this. Of course, <laughs> you know, I was in my mid twenties. I was a bit of a troll. Maybe I still am a bit of a troll at sometimes, but. It always goes too far. Um, and, and yes, I gave some early events at the Ball of Bosworth reenactment event, which is one of the best things I go to. It's one of my favourite highlights of my uh, calendar. And you A ve- man like you will love watching Richard uh, killed on well, the battlefield. Well, there is that. I mean, yes, I, I have been known to cheer. But it is just incredible sometimes the level of vitriol that can be aimed at you. And as you say, there was one occasion where I was manning a stall for a new society that was supposed to be for Bosworth, not poor Richard, not poor yeah. Henry, just a battlefield society that we tried to get off the ground. And a woman came up to me and started screaming at me because there were two of us man in the stall. One was wearing a Richard T-shirt, now he's wearing a Henry T-shirt. And she started shouting at me, and then she spat on the floor near me. 
And this whole time, I could only stand there and laugh. Because it's that age-old, you know, I've worked in customer service. It's that age-old, never respond yeah. in kind, keep your cool. But I just remember thinking, that woman just spat at me. And then later in the day, she came up and she grabbed the Welsh flag and she threw it on the ground. When I tell people in my life that this kind of behaviour happens, it amazes uh, friends and family. They don't understand that people could be this irrational. And that other instances involve... Um, this is like therapy. Uh, <laughs> other instances involve people coming up to me and hissing at me or putting up um, their fingers in a cross shape as, as though I am the devil for yeah, taking a liking to Henry VII. Now, obviously, it needs to be stressed that we are talking a handful of people and this is not representative of Ricardianism. It's not representative of the Richard III Society at large, but there is definitely an element out there who take things too far. It becomes too personal. Yeah. And it's very interesting that this is around the reputation. It's around a person who, regardless of what the studies of Richard III uh, and supporters of Richard III want to say, the case, the jury, is out on him. He may very well have been a child murderer. Yeah. You know, this has to be stressed. We can say, I definitely don't think Richard III did this, but you don't definitely know that. Yeah. You can have your opinion that Richard III didn't do X, Y, and Z. I can have an opinion that he might have done it. I don't know for a fact. Yeah, you but, don't know he did. They don't know he didn't. But it is amazing that you're willing to draw the line in the sand and be this personal and this aggressive in support of someone when you're probably doing far more damage to his reputation in many ways. I mean, you look at you look at the wider concept uh, of what people think Ricardianism is. Uh, they've been referred to as loons. They've been referred to as crazy insane. And I'm always on record saying that's not actually true. If anything, I'm defending Ricardianism against the wider general public. Anytime there's a news story that goes up regarding Richard III, the comments are... Oh, you know they're insane, and it's 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 people who believe the Ricardians are crazy, and I don't like to see that because I've spoken and met with so many Ricardians that I want them to be respected for what is a passionate uh, and often informed knowledge yeah. of this medieval king. It's just you have a small minority who let it down. It's it's football hooliganism. You know, ninety percent of football fans are fantastic, including myself. I'd like to think, but then you get a small minority who tar, the, tar everyone else with their behaviour. And it's just, it's just unnecessary. OK, so he's got this kind of dedicated fan club and this collection of extremists that are about him then. So what factors kind of contribute to the emergence of this revisionist movement? And what are some of the key arguments that they're making in defence of Richard, first of all? Look, we know that there was a chap called George Buck in the early 1700s um, who, you know, is considered perhaps one of the, the proto-Ricardian who decided that he found some documents and he wanted to unmalign the reputation of Richard. We have a later writer called Horace Walpole. So there's definitely the concept of some people out there who felt that Richard was a, a character un, whose legend was unfairly blackened mm -hmm. by the likes of Shakespeare and, you know, this all-pervasive Tudor propaganda that, that, that they go on about. I think 1923, the Society of the White Boar was founded, which is the precursor to the Richard III Society. But it really begins in the 1950s with the publication of the, A Daughter of Time by Josephine oh, Tess. Yes. And this is a, an incredible uh, historic mystery novel 
that was very popular, I'm told, in schools in the 1950s. In fact, the two books that really seem to have held on to an entire generation of people is The Daughter of Time and Catherine by Anya Seaton. Now, that's about Catherine Swinford, and because mm-hmm. I do books and talks on the Beauforts, I've become very well-versed with... Cult's probably a, a, a wrong word because it's not in any negative concept, but there's definitely a... Uh, a fan club of Catherine as well, Catherine Swinford, that yeah. comes out to my talks. They just don't hiss or, or, or spit at <laughs> me. Um, but, but yeah, A Door of Time has had an incredible legacy that has uh, influenced a couple of generations of people who read it. To this day, they have bought into Richard as being the greatest underdog history they've ever known, a romantic figure who was betrayed in his own time and then unfairly maligned after his death. Now, I read A Door of Time a few years ago, probably more than a few years ago now, but I read it. I finished it in one night. It is fantastic. It is one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, I, I've said the same with Sun in Splendour by Sharon yeah, Penman. Yeah. It's just I can rail through that. So good. You know, the story is fantastic. It's a dream book you would wished you would have written, but it all clicked into place. 95% of the arguments that I hear on social media and in person are almost lines taken verbatim from A Daughter of Time. It is like the Ricardian Bible. All of the arguments, certainly up until recently when Matthew Lewis has started to make his mark um, of the world with his you know, fantastic books about Richard III, and he started to change much of the debate and much of the narrative around Richard, certainly the majority of Ricardianism stems from A Daughter of Time. And it's so frustrating sometimes to be in debate and just see lines come out of it that you know are Yeah, such as? Oh, you're putting me on the spot Yes, now. I am. Um, you know, just, just concepts such as um, Richard had no... He had no motivation to kill the princes in the tower because he had made them illegitimate. Therefore, he had no motive and he had no means. He had no opportunity. Come on. He had no motive. Yes, he made them illegitimate... But that's just a piece of paper that could have been reversed at any time uh, in the years after. In fact, yeah. Henry VII actually did reverse it two years later. Um, oh, sorry, um, yeah, two years later after the Parliament Act was passed by Richard, Titulus Regis, Henry clicked his fingers, reversed it, and made Elizabeth of York, you know, and also her brothers, legitimate again. Just yeah. as simple as that. Henry VII became king when he was attainted and therefore technically under uh, forfeit. Henry IV became king, and so did Edward IV become king, even though they were technically subject to attainters. Pieces of paper simply don't matter. You can't yeah. just say, oh, well, in this detective book in 1955, the author, through a main character, says that Richard had no motivation because he made them illegitimate. Come on, that's bollocks. <laughs> it's, historic, it's historic bollocks, but it's just become... A fact in this world, and we can yeah. move we can move this up to almost modern uh, fiction writing with the works of Philippa Gregory, who has now gone to town on Margaret Beaufort, and suddenly we've got a whole new villain. Oh yeah, ent- enter the picture. Who Ricardians have uh, rounded on with incredible passion, and not in a good way, as their as their arch nemesis of this period. It's just. Bollocks. <laughs> well, 
Some of those Ricardians do argue, uh, as you've mentioned there, that Richard III's reputation is tarnished by Tudor propaganda. And, you know, on Twitter, you advertise yourself as a Tudor propagandist. What sort of Tudor propaganda actually was out there? And, you know, how much of that could, could we look at as dismissing or accepting? I think that says much for how much shit I get on Twitter <laughs> for just raising talking points and not subscribing to people's view of uh, Ricardism. Now, of course, there's been times where I've been a bit, a bit naughty, a bit of a twinkle in my eye, posting things. But the amount of things I post that just get completely torn to pieces by Ricardians. I mean, just very recently, I did a post about Margaret Beaufort very simply stating, on the anniversary of the Battle of Bosworth, we always remember the men that fought the battle. We need to remember there were women at home as well waiting for the men to return. Nothing controversial. Uh, Can't I, argue with that, I, I can you? I thought it was a very nice post. I was quite proud of that post that I've... You know, we have to remember that there were other people at play as well. Not even trolling in the slightest. It's a genuine post. 5,000 reactions, thousands of comments, just an absolute war zone it became because she is... I mean, the terms they use against her, as women themselves, generally speaking, is just abhorrent. So, yeah, so posts and an instance like that made me just go, you know what, I'm a Tudor propagandist. Let's just stick it in the profile. Let's Let's just... Let's just have some fun with it, because this is what it ultimately should boil down to. The study of history, this should be a topic that brings joy, it brings comfort to us all. It shouldn't be something that people are afraid of broaching. And there certainly are historians and people out there who will not touch this subject with a barge pole. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I used to be a rugby front rower. You know, I, 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 can, I can take a bit, of, a bit of stick thrown my way. But, but let, let's back to your question. I mean, Richard III... Was his reputation blackened and was he turned into a monster villain by Shakespeare? Yes. Shakespeare's writing 100 years after the Battle of Bosworth. This doesn't... It doesn't even follow that somehow Shakespeare and therefore the Tudors have created a black legend when Richard ended his days slung over the back of a horse because people believed... Enough people believed that he was capable of murdering his nephews. Enough people believed that he needed to be toppled. Now, yes, there were people who supported Henry Tudor for their own cause and their own benefit. Of course there yeah. was. Everything's about your own benefit back then. None of these people are, are good. Yeah. You know, just all bad for that matter. They're people. Yeah, all of these families are backing somebody. They don't really care who's king, providing it's the best for their family, uh, uh, aren't they? And, you know, I probably wouldn't have said this in my 20s when I was a bit more radical, but certainly in today's politics world, I just don't believe the modern politicians are necessarily uh, evil, malevolent figures. I mean, I'm not going to give away what my politics are, but whatever the, the, the who of the politician, I think they're incompetent. I think men, men are incompetent. Men in power are also incompetent. And there's no, there's no reason to believe that these men back then who were young. I mean, Richard was 32 at the time he died. Henry was 28 when he became king. Neither of them were supposed to be a no, king. they didn't have hindsight. They didn't know what the actions were going to cause, uh, and so on. But Richard, the point is, Richard ended up toppled and killed. This has to reveal something about what people believed him capable of. Tudor propaganda as a concept is 
a bit ridiculous in that it's the answer for everything. Turn to propaganda, turn to propaganda. Well, there was Yorkish propaganda. Richard III was a master of the arts at propaganda. In the run-up to Bosworth, he was he was claiming that Henry Tudor, uh, you know, was illegitimate on all sides of his family. Um, he was a Welsh milksop, and that his men were coming over to England to rape, slaughter, burn, steal. You know, he really went to town mm. on the incoming Tudor army. Edward IV, master of Yorkish propaganda. We have to remember that after the very first battle of the Wars of the Roses, 1455, the Yorkists won. Edward IV's father instantly went to Parliament and blamed it all on the dead Lancastrian leaders, yeah. um, the, the Beauforts in, in particular. No one talks today about Yorkist propaganda, but it was there. You know, t- the Tudors did succeed, but it's just this idea that Henry is somehow sat in his chamber, you know, ordering the cogs of machinery to get out there and churn out. Richard III did this, Richard III did that. Did we ever hear from Henry VII that Richard III murdered the princes in the tower? I mean, that's their, one of their main arguments against Richard doing it, that Henry VII never said that Richard murdered them. Well, that's a pretty shitty propagandist, is it not? Um, so, so, yeah, I don't buy into the idea that Tudor propaganda is somehow this catch-all excuse yeah. Um, for, for, for any of this. And you don't really need to sell it to the people in that time, you know, it's like, like you said in your last episode. You turn up with 7,000 armed, angry Welshmen and win, and you are king, and there you go. And the rest of the population will go, OK, he's king now, right then. What, what, what's incredible is that 24 years later, he was still king. Yeah. No, no one believed that he was going to hold on to that crown. I mean, as I say, two years, two years into Henry VII's reign, when we have the Battle of Stoke Field, John de la Poole, the Earl of Lincoln, uh, were told by Pollard of Virgil that he decided that day to, quote, try the fortunes of war. And why not? Anything can happen in battle. Inclement weather. Yeah. Uh, to uh, victory. If, yeah, um, a betrayal on the battlefield. You get onto the battlefield, anything can happen. Towton, the greatest slaughter of Lancastrians there was during the Wars of the Roses, our most bloodiest battle. The Yorkists lucked out with the weather. Uh, the Lancastrians couldn't sh- uh, loose their arrows. Mm-hmm. The snow hail was blowing them back. Lancastrians had done everything correct, as you would by the book at that battle, and they ended up getting slaughtered just because of the weather. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so I don't think it was... I think it was incredible that Henry Tudor was able to hold on to his crown as long as he did, but he did. I mean, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> history is the best propaganda. Okay, so looking at Richard III, the man, then, um, can you highlight some of the key flaws and big mistakes made by Richard III during his reign uh, that have a lasting impact on his reputation and the stability of his rule? Maybe he should have stayed in the north. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they liked him up in York. Yeah, I mean, the problem is I don't... Many people are against... This is where I'm kind of... I fall into a weird middle ground. I'm almost almost a quasi-Ricardian in some respects. You know, my good friend Martha Lewis, chairman of the Richard III Society, uh, the king of the Ricardians. Uh, (laughs) I've been too friendly with him for too long that I do buy into a lot of his arguments. You ask the general historian... Uh, community at large, Richard was a monster, decided to come in and usurp the throne from the moment that his brother Edward IV died. Something taken up by Thomas More obviously became 
infamous in the Richard III play. Bollocks, again. Richard III, he comes down south after the death of his brother. He takes custody of his nephew. Do not believe for a second he's got thoughts on, on the crown. Richard III is looking to take control of the kingdom on behalf of his nephew. He wants the Woodfills pushed aside because the Woodfills are coming for him. The two factions and so on. I believe that Richard eventually stumbles his way onto the throne because he just goes too far. He By taking custody of his nephew and imprisoning and then executing some of the Woodfills, he's earned his nephew's enmity forever. Edward V, the young nephew, is close to the Woodfills. Yeah. There's no way this boy is reaching his majority in a, in, a, in a couple of years later and turning around to Uncle Richard and saying, cheers, Uncle, I'll take over from you. You become my number two from now on. Payback was going to be a bitch for Richard. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Importantly, Richard, this is just bad timing. Richard enters London with his nephew. He's already taken control of his nephew. On the day he enters London, the 4th of May, 1483, George Neville, the Duke of uh, Bedford, dies. This is hugely significant because Richard only holds his very famed northern lands, uh, the, the states of Yorkshire and Lancashire. He only holds them for as long as a Neville lives. That was, that was part of his parliamentary grant uh, 10 years earlier by his brother. As soon as the Nevilles die, Richard only holds those lands till the end of his life, then they get taken back. So Richard's facing absolute ruin down the line here now. He's taken control of the Woodville-blooded king, his nephew, Edward V. He's pissed off all the Woodvilles. He's probably pissed off his nephew. He's got no land to hand on to his son. It's just a matter of when they destroy him. So Richard does the only thing he, he can possibly do, and that is, I believe, concocts a reason to get hold of the throne to, you know stabilise uh, England, because I do agree that England did not need a minority at that time. Yeah. Uh, France was circling in the waters, shall we say, at the time, and also for his long-term uh, security. But of course, by doing all of this, I don't think he had any choice. I wouldn't even call it a mistake. I just think 
he probably cursed the day that his brother died without sorting all of this out. You know, his brother yeah. died at 40, got a bit too fat, liked the beer a bit too much. I mean, I'm 37, so I need to heed a lesson. But I wouldn't say it was a mistake. But then <sighs> Ricardo said to me, almost bloodthirst, that he should have executed Margaret Beaufort. Every year on the anniversaries, he troll Facebook and Twitter the bloodthirstiness from many Ricardian women, generally speaking, who wanted to see her killed for her treason. And, you know, we hadn't quite got to Henry VIII. There was no way Richard was going to kill a woman because yeah. you told me yourself that he's not a monster, which I agree with. He couldn't have executed her. But if he had killed her, if he had been more decisive and more ruthless, perhaps he would have still have been on the throne 10 years later. So perhaps that was a mistake. I often get asked why he didn't present the boys, you know, to, to when they were dead, to prove that they were dead. I mean, I personally believe that's because they'd been thrown into the Thames uh, and that's why he couldn't get his, you know, he couldn't just summon the bodies to present. Is that a mistake of Richard's? I don't know, because if he had presented the dead bodies and everyone would have known he would have killed them. And then, would he, have, would he even have made it as far as Bosworth? The fact he loses yeah. his life is based on just suspicion that he killed the boys. Yeah. If, he'd been, if he'd gone, I did kill them, here they are, I think he would have fallen a lot sooner. Yeah, it's Matt Lewis is saying, when you've got the, like, the Perkin Warbeck Rebellion, the Lambda Silmanil Rebellion that are, you know, about, they say, the son of Edward IV... You know, that that threat's still there while they might be alive, but that threat is very much going to turn to extreme-focused revenge by anybody loyal to Woodville's, loyal to the sanctity of the crown, whatever you might like to say. But you, you can coalesce a massive rebellion around the fact that we now know you killed those two princes. I, I think Richard, I mean, I think he was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. I mean, even cl closer to, to Bosworth, I mean, he's got... He knows the Stanleys are wavering. Stanley's the Stanley's defect. He's in a, you know, he's in a heap of shit if, if mm. this happens. So he's got hold of the Stanley heir, George, and he's holding him and holding him, and he's threatening the Stanleys that if you don't stick with me, I'm going to kill your son. Now, I mean, ruling through fear is never a good way to to galvanise support for you. But what was he supposed to do even in that instance? Was he supposed to release George? Go to your father, because all you're doing there is you're giving up your leverage. I think Richard was Richard was almost done in from the moment his brother died. I don't yeah. I don't know what he could have done at any of that time to, to save his life. Let's say he defeats Henry Tudor and remains secure on his throne. There's still a longer-term problem of Warwick. Um yeah. now Ricardo will tell me that he treated Warwick very well. He does appear to have uh, treated him honourably as a as a cousin of the blood, but Warwick did nothing to Henry Tudor and eventually paid for that with his head. It's not because Henry Tudor was a monster or an evil figure himself. It's because Warwick, just just the Warwick name itself, the Warwick bloodline was a problem. People wanted to support him and support his claim because self preservation. All it would have taken is five years into Richard's reign, ten years into Richard's reign. He does something that pisses off enough people, yeah. and lo and behold, Warwick 
the name Warwick is suddenly resounding around uh, the kingdom. Because remember, Warwick was uh, stepped over for the crown because his, his father had been attainted for treason. That's just paperwork. Doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And that Warwick name as well caused enough problems for Richard's brother, Edward IV. You know, Warwick there can go from loyal supporter to outright enemy. People switch sides all the time. So when the Spanish were encouraging Henry VII to execute Warwick in 1499 because they didn't want to send their daughter over to an England that still had the potential for future dynastic conflict, one of the quotes that comes up was that it's because the name Warwick is so feared in Spain. And obviously that's a reference to Warwick, the kingmaker, whose fame uh, transcended borders. I mean, they obviously, they didn't know that the, the current Earl of Warwick was just a young, simple lad in the Tower of London who had, you know, very little of his grandfather's military bearing, but he was still a Warwick. Um, yeah. So the Spanish wanted to make sure that, that that problem was nipped in the bud. So, I don't know. Richard, I don't think he makes any mistakes other than taking the throne, but I don't know what else he was supposed to do. He was yeah. screwed. Would you say he was an architect of his own downfall or was it entirely just circumstance that does him does for him in? I think, I think, I think it's, it's circumstantial. This is what I mean. I mean, I am soft on Richard. I'm much softer on Richard than many of my peers. Um, I believe it was circumstantial simply because as soon as Edward dies, though that, that factional rivalry between, call them new money, you know, yeah. the Woodfills, and the old nobility, Richard, Buckingham, the Howards, uh, Edward IV is the villain in this piece. He didn't, he didn't secure the future for his, for his sons. Edward IV is a failed dynast. He might have been the creator of the House of York uh, as a royal dynasty, but he failed. He left his two sons to the slaughter. This is what made Henry VII so fearful towards the end of his life. This is why Henry VII enforced financial tyranny on his people because he decided the only way to get around this problem was to make the Tudor dynasty so rich they could outspend all of their rivals. Because he knew if he died before his time, he was leaving behind a young son who was again going to be fed to the wolves. Yeah. Henry's last six years... He seemed to have been near death every year, and he somehow rallied and rallied and rallied. He finally died in 1509 when he had a 17-year-old son, Henry VIII, who was an absolute powerhouse of a 17-year-old, you know. Talk about a wonder kid that yeah. he was. Henry hanging on, he did what Edward IV failed to do. You know, he learned his lessons. He needed to get his son to as near adulthood as possible to stop the vultures from circling. So, no, I don't believe uh, Richard was the architect of his own downfall because how it should have played out was Edward should have lived another 10 years. The boys should have been 17, 18 when they uh, inherited to their birthright at least, become kings. He would have been the grand old uncle. He would have played the role that Humphrey of Gloucester and John Duke of Bedford had played before, you know, the powers behind the throne, creating, holding on to the north and everything would have been fine. Didn't work out that way. Edward went and died and he left his beefs at court unresolved. So no, I, I don't think Richard was the architect of his own downfall at all. I think he was screwed by timing. And, yeah. and, and he just had no, he had no other choice. I, I don't know what he could have done. People often forget that Richard had his own son at this time as well. We forget that because by the time Bosworth rolls around, young Edward of Middleham is dead. You know, he's gone. We forget that Richard 
uh, had no wife. He had he had no wife and had no son by the time Bosworth comes. But in the year he becomes king, 1483, he becomes king and he's got a son. And I think, ultimately, it boils down to, for him to be a good father, to make sure his son's future is secured, he had to be a bad uncle. He has just come through the Wars of the Roses. He has seen what happens when cousins pitted against cousin all across the lines. He's sitting there in the summer of 1483. He's looking at his young son, about nine years old. He knows he's got his son's 12-year-old and 9-year-old cousins in the tower. In 40, 50 years' time, even if those princes in the tower all along decide, you know what, I'm not going to fight for my crown. Who's to say their children won't? Or their grandchildren won't? When Edward III created five dukes, and he was happy with all his five sons, do you think he foresaw that within 100 years, the descendants of all of those five sons were going to be battling each other for the crown? Um, the greatest thing that happened for Henry VII was that he had no brothers, he had no nieces, he had no nephews. He had just his bloodline to yeah. deal with. In uh, such, he has no blood rivals. Perfect. You know, so it's a perfect outcome for Henry VII. But all of this is unplanned. You can't plan for any of this, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I'll let Richard off on, uh, yeah. on the crime of being a, a monstrous... Uh, long-term planning usurper. Okay, well, the debate over Richard III's legacy continues to captivate both historians and the public. Uh, and in fact, as we mentioned earlier, the day that the day that they solved the Princess in the Tower murder, yours and Matt's career's done, really. Isn't it? <laughs> you know? um, but what are some of the enduring myths and misconceptions around Richard III that you need that, that even piss you off to the point where you go, "No, I need to clarify this right now." I mean, Richard wasn't a monster. I mean, Connor Shakespeare certainly wasn't born at about two and a half years old with teeth coming out. Um, he also didn't, uh, as Matt said, yeah. you know, he didn't make his first kill at St Albans when yeah, he was uh, two and a half. I mean, Richard was a man of his time. Um, he certainly wasn't a monstrous villain. He certainly wasn't a, a, an all-time body. I do believe he killed the princes in the tower. I'm happily on record all along every day saying that I believe he prince killed the princes in the tower. And I seem to be one of the few people who takes the line that good for him, it was the right thing to do. And that makes me sound like an absolute psychopath. But Do you have kids of your own? I have no, I have no kids. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not big on children, so maybe that's why. <laughs> um, but, but, but it's um, it's just that it was the right thing to do from, you know, for, for being king, for, for, for his own future and his son's future and England's future, because England could not deal with a minority at this time. It would have been a shit show if England had a minority, uh, weakened yeah. from within. Foreign enemies would have been circling us. It's just that he was a very good nobleman. I do believe, I'm happy to go along with a lot of the research by the Richard III Society and by Matthew Lewis that show the Richard's character in the years up to the time he takes the throne, and even certainly throughout there, was that he does seem to have been a thoroughly good man. He seems to have... Uh, been a champion for justice. I'm happy with all of these claims. I just think the men under intense pressure don't always act rationally. They a don't good always way. act. They do things and they can't take them back. And I think that this is the case with Richard. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a quasi-Ricardian. It was very interesting when obviously they found the body that um, he did have that curvature in the spine because you could almost hear hundreds of years of um, anti-Ricardians cheering that, of course, Shakespeare must have been right all along. 
he yeah. clearly was a hunchback. Scientifically, we know he was not a hunchback. Uh, it was scoliosis. Certainly, there was no withered arm that Shakespeare has. But it is very interesting, isn't it, that he did have that curvature of that spine. And the first time anyone would have seen that would have been when he was slung over the back of the horse. Now, yes, Tudor propaganda, if you want to call it that. Tudor chroniclers, uh, Polydor Virgil, Thomas More, uh, Hollinshed, Edward Hall, all of them, um, through to Shakespeare. They wouldn't have, you know, these weren't medical doctors and x-rays. They didn't know the difference between what a hunchback was and what a curvature of the spine or what scoliosis was and so on. I'd be very, I'd, I'd wonder if the average man in the street does also know that. But it is very interesting that people would have seen that and that would have been the start of conflating Richard, what he did during his reign, to Richard as the monster. So let's get rid of the monster myth. Right, right here. Not a monster, just a very bad uncle. <laughs> but, but for the right reasons. So, as a leading historian, there you go. Brilliant. Yeah, thought you'd like that, yeah. What advice would you give to those who want to criti critically assess historical figures like Richard III and avoid falling into the trap of either idealising or demonising them based on personal bias. Uh, you've got to read widely. Ricardians will not, the hardcore Ricardians will not read my work. They have no interest. Um, I've given talks before um, where, you know, a, a bus of Ricardians have, have come for the event and a handful have sat outside because they do not want to hear what my thoughts, opinions are on it. I am clearly uh, a troublemaker who follows Shakespeare and Thomas More. Never read Thomas More. Purposely, I've never read Thomas More because I know that's going to cloud my views on this subject. Thomas More did not invent much of the debate around Richard III. Definitely Shakespeare didn't do so. My first advice is read widely. I read Matt Lewis's work inside out. He reads my work. We might not agree on much of the subject, but by reading my work, he's reinforcing or building blocks in his own theories. He's able to look at his own theories and, and try and work out, hmm, maybe I've missed something out here. And he's able to maybe change his theory or try and look for further information. You only are going to learn about Richard III by reading all of uh, the information out there, not just traditionally anti-Ricardian uh, viewpoints. Like I wouldn't respect someone who's trying to write a book on Richard III, but he's only using Thomas More, William Shakespeare. No, read Matt Lewis's work. Read all of those uh, hundreds of probably thousands of articles yeah. that are in the Richard III Society. Most of them are available for free on the Richard III website. Don't go onto that website assuming this is all going to be Ricardian fluff nonsense. There is, in, there is an incredibly detailed you know, library out there by the hard-working academic historians who just happen to have an interest in Richard III. Read them. Read everything. Read everything get your hands on and then try and put together your own your own, own viewpoints. And I guarantee you'll probably come somewhere down the middle, like me, and again, Matthew Lewis, we are down the middle, but just on the other side of a coin. And I think that is where the real Richard does truly lie. He's not out there as this wonderful uh, fantasy underdog. I mean, that's the other thing that does actually wind me up, the, the, the underdog theory of Richard. Um, <laughs> obviously, fine, maybe he's an underdog in, in death, uh, but in his lifetime, there's only one underdog at the Ball of Bosworth, and that was this little-known Welshman who no one had ever heard of, 
who was fighting a larger royal army with a bunch of French mercenaries, a handful of English rebels, and some really tough, yeah. brilliant, wonderful Welshmen um, who took down uh, the King of England. The concept that the King of England was the underdog at Bosworth yeah. drives me insane. Henry Tudor, 28 years old, had never so much as run an ice cream van, let alone an estate. And this man became king. He yeah. is a true underdog story. Not just came king, but came king militarily against the victor of Barnet and Tewkesbury. Absolutely. You have to read works that you do not think you will agree with, because you'll be surprised. I see, I see all the time my books. There's a big difference between what I'm putting in my work and what I'm tweeting from the pub <laughs> at 7pm on a Saturday watching the rugby. Read the books. Read widely. This goes for people who are anti-Ricardian or pro-Ricardian. Well, thank you very much, Nathan. You didn't think you could do a second rage, but by God, do you feel better? Yeah, I do feel good, actually. Yeah, yeah. good. Well, if you'd like to know more about this subject, then you can start by reading Nathan's book, as he has very precisely told you to do so there, um, both on the House of Beaufort and on Henry VII. You can catch his prior episode that he did with us about Henry VII's claim to the throne in our back catalogue. Both those books are available in the History Rage bookshop, and you can follow Nathan on Twitter, at Nathan Amin. Nathan, thank you very much for giving up some time, particularly because you've got to get back to London to share this rage. Thank you very much for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've got several more coming for you over the course of the festival. If you've not managed to make it to this year, then the festival returns twice in 2014. Those dates are the 12th of April to the 14th of April and the 7th of September to the 22nd of September 2024. You can sign up to the festival mailing list at gloucesterhistoryfestival.co.uk and follow them on Twitter at GlossHistFest. Finally, if you're loving us, then please follow us on Twitter at History Rage and please support us on Patreon. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next time, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye.